I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. My guest this week has established himself in the past decade as one of the preeminent songwriters in rock and pop. Focusing as a teen on what made a song work and using his New York hustle to track down hit makers, he could easily have been a music historian. In 2019, he held down the Billboard Rock Songwriters Chart's number one position for nine weeks. His hits have included Panic at the Disco's High Hopes and Fits in the Tantrum's Hand Clap. Songwriter Sam Hollander and I chop it up about what it takes to collaborate with huge artists, having Andy Warhol as a babysitter, and his practice of creativity. My conversation with Sam Hollander. Hey, Sam. Hey. Thank you for joining the show. What's up, Nick? How you doing, my man? I'm excited to see your face. I have not seen it in a while or heard your voice in a while, so this is fun for me. It's aging rapidly. <laughs> Join <laughs> the, the march to the ocean. No, 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 no. I, 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 I just, uh, I just, I try to, I try to will a Benjamin Button situation every day. I don't know if it's manifesting, but I'm trying. Awesome. Hey. We all are trying our best to live our best lives here. So that's right. So how have you got? I mean, how has anything changed? Like, um, look, everything's changed in the last year. Um, there is no back to normal, I don't think. Um, in songwriting, did you still like do collaboration? Was it done through Zoom or how did you work last year? You know, I felt like I was the uh, the last human on Zoom. You know what I mean? Like the, the front end of the pandemic was pretty traumatic. I, I lost a very close friend. Um, and, you know, when he passed, I, I just, I don't know, I went into, I just went into hibernation mode. I didn't really feel anything creatively. And then I came out of that and I realized I had to, uh, had to, you know, create to, to stay, uh, keep my cognitive abilities moving. So I, I, I thought of maybe I, I tried to sort of access any situations where people were writing in backyards a hundred yards away from each other, where we could just shout it out. I actually wrote one day I wrote with Greg Wadenberg and uh, Johnny Resnick from the goose. We wrote in a, uh, a basketball gym, an open air basketball gym in the middle of December in Connecticut. And we were, I think, 25 yards away from each other and it was a little ludicrous but you know just anything for the human contact but I kept uh on the zoom front I finally in the winter began zooming aggressively just to get the muscles going you know and I, I enjoyed it I mean it, it doesn't it doesn't replicate um the in-person experience for me because i i enjoy all the tangible sort of visceral shit that you feel when you're you know digging in a room and i'm dancing around and i'm just like you know i'm just i don't know man i just I, there's like an essence i was missing but that being said there were some perks uh, i liked avoiding uh rush hour traffic i liked uh <clears throat> there were shorter days and there, you know less 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 debating, you know, whatever topic of the morning for an hour. It's, a, you know, I love the socialization, but if it's old friends, we can get into it, hit it, and then I can go on and, you know, get cardio going or something. So 
it was a, you know, I've learned it's a necessary evil. It kind of, there's days I dig it. Yesterday was a great day. Um, previous ones, sometimes not as great, but you know, you just keep grinding. Right. And do you, um, cause I get a sense when you're in the room, you're kind of like a high energy guy in my mind. <laughs> so, you know, so, so do you, you bring that in? I would think physically and that, that makes a, a difference. I'm a spark plug, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I come in, I, I approach it like a, like a, a bit, maybe I'm a baseball pitcher, but I approach it like I'm coming in, I'm closing. I just want to come in and I'm just like so ramped up because I've done all sorts of due diligence before whoever I worked with, I've done days of due diligence on end. Like I've studied up, I study tendencies, lyrical, melodic. I listen to interviews, spoken interviews, just to understand their verbiage and understand what feels natural and indigenous and something that just feels absolutely, as opposed to something that just is, I just don't want to come with some pitch bullshit with somebody that wasn't thought out. And that's always kind of been my game. Like I really, I, I, I put the work in. So um, it, I love that feeling of walking through the room. One of my favorite joys in this business is like striding into a room, knowing that I've got it figured out and knowing that I have the roadmap of the day and lyrically or melodically or whatever. And it just, that blueprint is so hard to ascertain. I think on zoom, it's just different because you can't read their faces. You know what I mean? Like right now I'm looking at you and you know, we're doing great, but secretly if I didn't know you and I'm staring at your face, that could be a look of horror. So <laughs> I just want to, I just, that's the hardest thing for me is just to, to make sure, you know, reading the room is exceptional. Like it's a skill and it's so imperative for what we do. And that's, what's interesting about you in a way. Cause I, I think you're part historian <laughs> and like you have this ability to kind of like you put the work in to understand this so nuanced you know every little nuance I'm just that's a like nerd, a great man. thing that's it no that's that's I'm fantastic nerd. I'm just like one of these guys who grew up I was a colossal fan all I ever wanted to do was um, buy records at flea markets and study them like baseball cards you know and so my idols were producers and songwriters and just all these cats that I read on the back of the records. And, you know, historically, you know, I, I grew up like I really listened to every genre and every era. And I really like uh, that was school for me. So the, I, I try to pull from all these varied sources when I'm writing and it becomes some semblance of musical gumbo, you know, where I'm just pulling from different eras and different influences and trying to create something um, new. And uh, that's that's always been what what how I wake up in the morning. It's like the joy of just knowing that maybe I can harness, maybe I, my spirit is like looming in 72 one morning and maybe another one it's in 64. And another one, it's like I'm sitting with Billy Idol and Steve Stevens in 1984, like having the summer of my life in my head, you know? And that's what I try to do. How do you, you know, I'm always, I'm curious about this because I think of this in my own situation. It's like when we were kids, I don't know how we got exposed to so many different genres of music. I, I, what was the difference? I mean, we never went down a particular you, path. Everything was, a, I heard everything when I was a kid in the seventies. Yeah. I, when I was a little kid, you know, where I grew up, there was that pivotal moment where you either were a Kiss fan or you weren't. Now I was a Bee Gees fan. Right. And so at the age of seven or eight, I get in scraps in the schoolyard defending Barry Gibb and his his 
his brilliance. And of course, disco ends up, you know, Kiss ends up making a disco record. So they, they, they joined my club. They knew I was right. right? <laughs> yeah. Desmond steps in or whoever, and suddenly it's like four on the floor. And that's my favorite kiss anyway. Like that's the kiss that I want to listen to. But, you know, in my house, my mom was like this Mingus head. She was into Mingus. She was into uh, uh, Bill Evans. She was into, uh, she was into some pretty neat stuff. And then she also, she, my mom was listening to Lloyd Cole and the commotions. I mean, my mom was rad, right? And then she turned me on to Blossom Deary. And we used to listen to a lot of like the Blossom Deary records that she put out on Daffodil in the early 70s, where it was like cocktail trio, but the grooves are like funky. It's like some stuff that Questlove would be like, oh, that's like nasty. It was like groove based. And I just listened to all that stuff. I had a brother, an older brother who came of age in the 70s and he grew up listening to like Shit Kicker, uh, uh, Skinnerd and the Outlaws of Molly Hatchet and like all this Eagles and all this rock stuff, you know, and then a lot of classic rock. And all these forces just came together as I was a kid. And I just was able, I, I had no, uh, I had no musical elitism, man. So like to me, every I can find the heart in any genre because to me it's all song based, you know, and that's the thing that brings me joy. So it doesn't matter how you dress it up. I just I if I connect to like the core of the bones of the song, I don't care what the genre is. I can totally get it. Wonder if that's what the difference is in a way. Maybe we're just songologists, and it was just the song, not the genre. You know, I I, I think that's probably it. I mean, there's definitely like there was like uh, you know I, I wasn't a hair band guy. I missed it, but I you know, but when 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 White Lion came out with like is Wait is that White Lion? I thought that was theirs. Wait, that sounds right. Like when Wait comes along or Dokken or one of these things, you know. Like uh, these songs, they were certain songs that I was like, that's awesome. I get it. You know, so that that I still feel the same way, even, you know, in this era, even as songwriting has changed and, you know, um, choruses don't get off the way they used to. And it's a lot of choruses that are anticlimactic and all this stuff. I just try to listen through it and think, okay, but if I strip this down to the essence of the song, would I back it? And that's how I, you know, that's how I listen to everything. Right. And you've been in, Plenty of rooms with kind of the the legends, maybe, you know, from your childhood and stuff. And I mean, what's it like being in a room like that versus being with your peers? I mean, I imagine you've surmounted it at this point, but maybe you know, not. <laughs> I, it, it's interesting. It's uh, I was blessed with a couple of things as a kid. I um, my mom was really rad. My parents were wonderful. They're both artists. And um, my mom can, uh, was working with Andy Warhol when I was a little kid. I had this really weird backstory where my mom was his interior decorator for a while. They partnered even on a restaurant at one point. And um, at the same time, you know, um, Andy's boyfriend was a guy named Jed Johnson, who was a, uh, a brilliant designer and also a, uh, a you know, a, uh, a, he directed some of the Andy's movies coming out of the factory. And on weekends, every once in a while, it didn't happen a lot, but maybe three, three, four times, something like that, they would drop me at Andy's apartment at the weekend when I was eight or nine, and I'd sit with Andy and his maids in the kitchen, and he would babysit me while I, uh, while my mom was uh, running around gallivanting, just buying pieces and stuff. So I, I, what happened, what that did for me is early on, I was exposed to like a weird level of like sort of Studio 54 era celebrity stuff, where I just met people through my mom in the mid to late, late, late 70s, early 80s. 
And I was a little kid, but it took away um, fear. And that really uh, was one of the great gifts that was sort of bestowed on me because I honestly, I'm, I'm not shook when I get in a room with anybody. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Carol King or Ringo or, you know, the OJs or Tom Jones or any of those people, or if it's an 18 year old kid with a laptop who literally made his first beat last week, put it on TikTok, got signed and some label called me to work with him, whatever. I just, uh, I, I really, I can take all of the, uh, the hyperbole out of it. And I really am just trying to bond with somebody at the core. And uh, that's been the great gift that I've, uh, I, I really am very grateful to my parents for that because I, it's a, it, it was always a hell of an advantage, you know, cause I'm not flustered. So that, that helps tremendously. Did you see the Halston movie yet on Netflix? <laughs> uh, it's on the queue and I am so excited to watch it. It's definitely on the queue. It's not you know? bad. Is that, I, you know, I, Ryan Murphy, I, I tend not to be a fan cause I think he's just hit over. or miss. Hit or yeah, miss. He's really hit or miss. And I, or I don't miss. know on this one. I thought he was a little, you McGregor, I thought was fantastic. So I, I, I really need to see it. And the, you know, You'll that, relate era, to it. that era I've always felt like is uh, usually depicted in such like a caricature kind of way, which bums me out, you know? And so I'd love to see if they, if they got it right. I still have memories of it. I, mean, I was a little kid, but I was pretty present and I, I loved it because I love the music and I don't know. I just, I thought the whole thing was so fabulous and strange as a little guy that I was like, this is so sick. I love this. So it's dope. <laughs> so did a lot of that like inform your hustle? I mean, you know, New York always makes someone hustle a little harder, you know, than you would approach how you do it in LA. Um, New York defined me because um, you have to understand if these were athletic terms, I was sort of the guy who like, you know, I, I think, the world was betting against, you know, I was a tremendous underachiever, both academically and everything, you know, and uh, I came out in the world and I, I really, at the age of 15, I knew what I was going to do in my life. Like I never had a question. I always knew I was going to be a songwriter and a producer. It was just always, it, it was the only thing that I ever took to, I can't do anything, Nick, you understand. I'm not a functioning human. We had a very, very awkward run in yesterday. My wife and I were, going for a walk and at the, where our cars are parked by this reservoir, there's a woman trying to put together like one of these like electric wheelchair things for her mother. And she's having a panic attack. She's saying, like, I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. And my wife just looks at me with that look of disgust because she knows that there's nothing I can do to help this woman. And so no, <laughs> normally I just, I, I plead, I say, look, I'm inept. I can't do anything. This might be, so I don't want to embarrass myself in front of you by feigning interest in this and failing. So this one, I actually stepped up and I feel like I, I did a couple things right. I didn't bring it home, but I was pretty close. I felt like I was a contributor yesterday, which was big for me. My wife usually is the more mechanical one, but I, I, I earned my keep. But the punchline being that New York uh, for me was um, once identified that this was the only passion that I really had, um, New York presented this incredible uh, mountain to climb, man, you know? And it is, I always say this, and um, it's completely true. I used to have a knapsack of cassettes. I used to stand outside Black Rock, the old Sony building. I memorized all the faces from Billboard. There was a newsstand on 23rd and 6th. I lived in Chelsea. There's a newsstand. There's a Barnes and Noble, you know, on, on 22nd, between 22nd and 23rd on, on 6th Avenue. And I would read Billboard cover to cover. 
study all the faces, all the A&R names from the gold record trade shots. So it's like, here's, you know, Donnie Einer, Tommy, Tommy Matola, you know, you get on the list, Don DeVito, all these guys. And I would study their faces and then I would accost them outside the Black Rock building because I felt like I was the one guy, if I was handing out tapes, I actually had memorized all their names and was able to put a face to the name. So uh, it didn't, you know, it was one of those things, it was the hustle was so hard. I said, I would send out demos all night. I would reset, like literally, like I'm gonna talk about like straight up, like looking in the phone book. I got my first gig interning at DNA Records on 141st on Malcolm X Boulevard. I got that internship solely by like a phone number in, in, in the white pages. I looked up the guy, you know, who ran it and just, I just, I don't know. My hustle was legit. I really, I, uh, because I also knew that there was no fallback. I dropped out of college. I'd been through three colleges by the time I was 20. So it just wasn't meant to be. So. Yeah. Well now, I mean, it must be slightly, look, you're once a hustler, you always hustle sort of, but I mean, you have a reputation now you have all these hits under your belt. Um, What's it like now? I mean, how do you pick your projects? How do they come to you? Do you kind of like target people and say, you know what? That guy is talented or that girl and I'm working with them. Well, I'll tell you the truth. Nick, I'll tell you the truth. I've been a whore my whole life, you know? And I really, uh, if anything, if I saw an end game where I felt that this was going to push my narrative forward in some way, shape or form, I was tend to take it, even if aesthetically it wasn't my thing, you know? And uh, a year and a half ago, I sold my catalog. I sold 499 songs to Merck at Hypnosis. And the reason I did it was for the next act, I really want to be able to be hyper-selective and just really do labor of love at this point. I, I, I really, um, I, I love what I've accomplished. And I love, um, I, I really stand by the body of my work. I really dig what I've done so far. But now um, for the next wave, I, I really just want to, um, like really hyper focus on things that just like move me as opposed to just chasing chart stuff. Cause I don't know. I just, I feel like that the, 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 the opportunity presented itself and that felt like the, a way to really alter the, my process a little bit. And it's been magical so far. It's been even during the pandemic, just being able to sort of pick and choose a little bit. It's very freeing, you know, having done that last year, then, I mean, do you have a relationship with that now that you can, I mean, it sounds like you've separated. You know, people get so attached to their music from the past. and I, But is it just a clean slate? It's like, this is great. I mean, does it I, feel that way? I look at it like this. You know, um, my name is on these songs forever. My name is on the songs. If anyone goes down the rabbit hole of a song, maybe there's an interview where an artist might talk about my involvement and say something hopefully very nice. That means the world to me. I don't care about the rest, you know? I don't care about the rest. It's pretty funny. Occasionally a song will come on in a commercial or a movie and I don't get the, and I, you know, I don't get the requests anymore. They don't go to my manager. So I, sometimes it's a, it's a surprise to me. Like everyone else like, oh, wow, that was a nice sync, nice work. But it it's just freeing. It's like I, I, I once a year I make it a, a habit to take the car. I'm in, whenever I'm in LA, I take the car, I do the the ocean drive and I listen to like the body of my career. Like I listen to sort of the pivotal songs in my eyes and it's a very emotional thing for me, but I only do it once a year. 
And that's it. Like once a year, I just want to reconnect with my story, you know, internally and, and, and try to just dial some of the emotion in, you know, and just realize what, where, I, where it all came from and how it started and built, but then it's over. I, and then it's not nostalgic. It's pushing forward always to the next, because I just want to beat what I did. I want to get better. It's like really like practicing, just getting better every day. Right. I mean, when you did the like New York to like LA transition, like, you know, 10 years ago or a decade ago, you know, I got a sense that from some of the stuff I've read and knowing you that you had some self-doubt, you know, a little bit into like a, I don't know, I, I use the word crisis, but it sounded like you had a lot of self-doubt and you were unsure of your path when you did that. You know, Nick, I went cold when I got to LA. You know, it's funny. We got off the plane. Uh, me and my wife and my kid, we get off the plane, black car picks us up to take us to our rental house, you know, and we're in the car and one of my songs comes on the radio. And I'm thinking, this is like destiny, man. This is like, how fortuitous is this? This is this incredible, this incredible moment. And then the next day, I just realized no one cared. You know, I got there and it was humbly because in New York, a lot of people left New York, as we know, like New York, you know, obviously was the hub for so many years, but it really pushed to LA, pushed to Nashville and New York thinned out a little bit. And I was the beneficiary of a lot of work because there just weren't that many cats in town, you know, um, in my space. And I got out to LA and there were a lot more cats and music was shifting at the same time. Um, you know, as Max and Luke were really like in the zeitgeist at that moment, and they really dialed into that thing, music, uh, you know, pop was shifting. And as I watched the landscape shift, I was sort of disconnected from it musically. And then the alternative stuff, suddenly you had this wave of foster the people, the end of the MGT, uh, MGMT thing, um, you know, you had these really badass, like the last sort of, to me, the last really great wave of alternative stuff in a row. Like there were some really new bands, new bands that broke. And when that happened, I would dissect those songs and I really couldn't figure out why they were working. And that scared the hell out of me because historically I was able to break things down to the essence of the song. And then I build it back up and just to understand why a song actually resonated. And on these songs, they were they were just beyond me in some weird way. I wasn't hearing them and I began to panic. You know what I mean? And I took a gig during that time. I took a gig doing music for uh, NBC Smash for the second season of Smash. I did uh, 30 something songs we tracked. And during that time, it was it was it was a really sexy gig on paper. Um, but it took me out of the writing game for another nine months. So now I'm already kind of lost. And then, you know, I, I suddenly, I'm, you know, I removed myself from the, from the, uh, from the everyday grind of it. I get back in, I'm just not hearing it. And I had a couple of like hits during that time, but I was so disconnected from what I was writing. Uh, I felt zero connection, zero sort of uh, resonance to any of it. I just I wanted out. And right around that time, I, I hit a wall. And uh, I came back east for a break and I came back and I just went through this weird catharsis, man. Like I had this I had this crazy dinner. I went out to dinner uh, with a, a, a gentleman named Steve Nash. who's a basketball player. He's now the coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Go Nets. Greatest. <laughs> Soon to be NBA champ. Brooklyn Nets. Lifelong fan, by the way, from the Jersey days. So I can own this. But um, so I, I went to dinner with this guy and, and my friend Jeremy. And we went to dinner and... Um, we're talking about process and 
Steve Nash said something. Uh, we asked him, we said, you know, how do you at the at this point, he's probably a 38 year old point guard in the NBA and he's playing against 17 year old kids who I would assume could literally like catapult over him, you know, and we said, how do you keep it up? He said, well, look, he said, you know, I am um, in my third year in the NBA. My numbers were like plummeting and I saw a sports psychologist and the guy you know, prescribed like a healthy dose of yoga, Tai Chi, um, meditation, swimming, just all these different disciplines. But he said, you can never take a day off during your regular season. So when you're in regular season mode, you write every single day, you know, you create every single day, you, you do it as some sort of discipline. He said when he started doing these exercises and never took a day off during the season, suddenly his numbers went through the roof again. And he was able to maintain that level of consistency for the rest of his career as a Hall of Fame player. And I began to, as I was walking home through the, the arches that night through Washington Square, I was thinking about my own life and my own career. And, you know, I've been writing with Dave Katz for about five or six years, and we'd had this incredible run together. But I think we both knew at that point we were beginning to phone it in because everything was kind of working. And then you start to just repeat more of the same, you know, and I felt like we were phoning it in a little bit. And I knew I was from my end. Lyrically, I was doing all these escapist themes. Like, how many escapist lyrics can you do? You know what I mean? I just kept writing different versions of it. And um, so that night, I, I made the strange vow to myself that during the season, and my season is basically um, late September to the holidays, and then late January to Memorial Day. The summers are off because I write with bands and I write with artists and they're on tour, you know? So I have a defined a defined year, which is somewhat like a high school teacher's, but I realized during those periods, I have to write seven days a week and I have to do something. I have to put something on paper every single day. So maybe it was a stack of titles, maybe it was verses, choruses, you know, voice notes, maybe it was just like a change that I liked and sort of hum something over. And I got, I, once I started that routine, my career just completely transformed. I became a completely different writer. I was like so much more present. I felt like my, my when I walked into the room, my first step was just on, you know, I was just extremely focused, dialed in, no bullshit. And um, it changed my life, man. And so, and that I owed in New York and a weird night of happenstance, but it really that's it took me that to come back to New York to get my bearings to then fly back a week later to LA and just start killing it. So it, for me, that's how it worked. Wow, that's a great story. I love uh, that Steve Nash was part of it. Steve Nash, and honestly, the nicest guy in the world, like like the disgustingly nice guy. You know, so sweet and just really, really insightful. So, yeah. so now as you go into a room now, is is you know Sam Hollander, two thousand twenty one. <laughs> what do you think your greatest asset is you bring into that room, into any room? I feel like I'm a grown ass man. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I have a, a lot of experience and um, a lot of tricks. And that helps because sometimes I have to be the grown up in the room. You know, I got to be the OG. And then also when I'm working with the legends, I'm able to come at it from a different attitude because I can sort of harness some of the younger aspects of record making right now and, you know, and some of the tricks that the kids use. So I'd like to believe in some weird way I'm kind of like a, a conduit between generations, you know, I'm in that weird place in my life where, you know, I, I've worked with people who are 80 plus and I've worked with people who are 
18. So it, 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 it helps because I, I can really sort of, I can really kind of throw down in a lot of varied situations and with zero, um, you know, um, zero setback, I would like to believe. Right. Have you ever had, and you don't have to mention who the person was. Bring it. I mean, <laughs> have you ever had like a, the, just like the worst experience of my life walking in that room or, or has that oh, ever happened where you just, man, like, I've had I so give many, up. <laughs> I've, I've had so many, man. I, I, um, I've had so many of them. I, what it, the way it works out, the way it shakes out is if I'm like, if I'm in a year where it's a, I'm on a, I'm on the, uh, the rotation of co-writes with artists or whatever. I'm on that, that, that treadmill. Um, if I'm hitting it five or six days a week in person, or let's say four days a week in person, to be honest, if I'm doing that and it's a full year, there's going to be one to two horrific days a year. You know, I once had a, I once had a kid come in and he was coming off. He had had a, uh, he had had a, a pretty big, decent sized pop hit. It was the early two thousands. And there was uh, the follow-up was taking forever. There was nothing. And, you know, he was this really good looking kid, sort of boy band kid. And he comes in the studio, but now he looks different. He looks very grunged out. He's looked like, you know, he, he's working through something, you know, and he comes to the studio and I tell him, you know, man, I loved your single, man. It was so great, man. Are we going to build off that? Do something along those lines. And this is, you know, I had this moment in my career, Nick, where in, my, in the years that I struggled, which were numerous and endless on the front end of my career, 15 years of or 14 years of absolute failure, um, I was what I would refer to as a Z-list writer in terms of... Um, I would actually, it was really kind of like a P list. It was sort of like the Pan Am list. And the Pan Am list was I, uh, an artist would be in New York and writing with like the three or four writers that really mattered at New York at the time, whoever they were. And then the artist checked out to fly back home that night. They had a night flight back to wherever they came from. They check out of the hotel at noon and labels began to figure out, well, Sam Hollander, he's got a studio. It's in Soho. It's in a nice area. He's got this little shitty room in, in Soho. So I could send the artist down there with his bags and his way the artist out of town. <laughs> on his way out of town. And he could do like two hours if he wants with Sam, or he can just leave his bags there and go shopping. But I became the de facto Pan Amlist guy. So I was on this uh, this rotation of hell and no songs were ever cut. It was a year of my life, but it also it completely set me up for the future because I began to really research every session I ever had ahead of time. Like my manager and I, Brett, you know, I've had the same manager, Brett Deason, since uh, shit, 98, 99. And our our. You know, we really look into records. We want to know who the team is, who the manager is, who the label is, because if it's if I don't know enough, I'm not going to spend my day on something. I really want to know that there are people involved who I trust who can deliver it, because as you and I both know, a shitty manager can ruin any record. And I um, it's it's imperative to really like get the right team on something for it to work. I do believe in that. But sorry. So I'm on this session. This cat comes in. And he pulls out an acoustic. Now, his stuff had always been sort of synthy and sort of super programmed. He pulls out an acoustic and he just starts playing a little bit. And he's like, I'm going to do a song about World War II. And I was like, he's like, 
do you understand this was the greatest generation? I said, no, I do understand. Absolutely great. They're, they're phenomenal. They're, they're, they're the greatest generation for a reason. Yes. Do you understand the suffering and hardships that yeah, I do? I do. I totally do. I totally do. I don't know how this has any bearings on the fact that I'm trying to come up with a Hail Mary single right now for your stuff. That's supposed to be bubbly and sheeny. And he starts playing, but the body language is incredible because he starts playing and then he turns his back to me and my collaborator, uh, Dave Schomer that day. And he turns his back to us and he just starts strumming. He's like, mm-hmm. he's doing an Eddie Vedder kind of thing. He's like, oh, my God, this does not sound like pop. And He's like shedding the song and he's working out his feelings and they're very emotional. And look, it, 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 I love the heart. It was very, it redefined earnest, but he kept his back to us. So he's in my studio. He's got his bags there. He's flying out in five hours, but he's turned his back to me. He's just humming something. So this goes on for an hour. Finally, after an hour, I'm, man, hunger kicks in. Oh, I'm starving, man. I'm like, all right, hey, I'm going to go down to Aladoro down the street and just get a sandwich. Is that cool? And he just nods. I go and get a sandwich. I brought him back a sandwich. I paid the $10, got him a sandwich full of like prosciutto and like <laughs> mozzarella. Good stuff, you know? Guy gives me nothing, man. Another hour. Now he's got like the foundation of a verse and a chorus. And I was like, okay, cool, cool doesn't play it for us, just has his back to us the whole time. That was an incredible day. Um, there are there are days like that I could go on. The story just goes on forever, but you, you don't need to. Did you ever determine what that was, like in retrospect? I mean, was it drugs? Was it something no, else? No, it wasn't drugs. It was torture. It was a tortured mm. artist. And, you know, I think the pressure, you know, like one thing I've learned is I, I like working with an artist um, on their debut, Right. Now, that's changed a lot because a lot of these songs are being made in bedrooms in the middle of Omaha where some kid put up a beat that night or whatever, and it reacted and they get their record deal. That changes the power structure a little bit because, you know, when a label takes that kid and tries to jam him in a room with me, that kid is like, wait, who is this old dude? I don't want to be with that guy. I made this with my homies. Like, why would I want to like write songs with this guy? So that changed. But that's that's like that's the biggest change I've seen on the horizon in the last few years. But Outside of that, um, I think the I, you want to be on the first record and then you kind of want to be like the fourth record, right? So like you don't want to be there in that middle dip, but it's great to be there when everything's happy and you want to be there on the fourth one when it's rehabilitating it because I just want to be in a place where people are receptive to my ideas. So freshmen and senior years of high school are where you come in. Does anyone ever talk about their sophomore year? Oh, it was incredible. Other than getting your driver's license. And nowadays no one cares, right? Back when we were kids, it mattered. Well, you you were a city kid. Maybe it didn't matter, but. uh, It's just the whole thing. It, it, um, it's just, you know, yeah, the, the Uber changes everything. Yeah, that's true. So are you still, um, you know, you've always been kind of involved on the advocacy front um, for songwriters. Are you still involved with any of that or do you, you know, not so I, much? I, you know, I, 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 I'm definitely involved, but as an ancillary figure, I just am very supportive of Sona. Uh, songwriters of uh, North America, Michelle Lewis, Kay Hanley, Shelly Pike and Pam Shane, Brendan Oakland, uh, Adam Dorn, Jack Hugel. Like these people are Adam Gargoni. These are great people. They're doing great work. And anytime they have something, I sign on because they're just um, they're kind of like our last hope. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, I just feel like this is always a moving target. And 
you know, I, 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 I was very lucky. I was fortunate to be in a business at a time where, you know, I was able to, to make a nice living doing it. And it's been a wonderful thing. And I'm very, that is not lost on me how blessed I am. I'm nervous about the future for these people because it's going to be very hard to string together long-term careers when the finances are just terrible. And if radio goes away, which I believe radio is going to go away, if Spotify remains where it is in terms of payments to writers, I just don't know. You know, owning a master is great. Like, but if you're just a writer the way I was, I don't own masters. I'm just a guy who writes songs. So, Well, now there's a new kind of controversy around the mechanical rate again, right? And yep. it's kind of stuck in a certain position that it's been stuck in for a long time. And it was agreed to in the Music Modernization Act. Um, it just never ends. It just, it just never ends. Like, uh, that's one of the things I sort of, um, I don't know, I, 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 I have a lot of friends who are super optimistic, but I, I'm still somewhat of a pessimist in terms of like, these things don't rectify in, on a yearly basis. This is, this takes going to take years to actually um, alter that landscape. Right. And what's a digital mechanical rate? It's what, two cents? It's not, yeah, I mean, two come tenth. on. It's nothing, two tenths right? of something. Two, it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing. I, when I get when I get my state statements on that stuff, it's always like, okay, did I get beer money tonight? You know, that's really did. You know, we, we have talks with friends where I literally say a very successful song in 2021 with the streaming aspect, not the radio stuff or the syncs, but the streaming side of it is if it paid my gas to the session, it was an incredible day. You know. Wow. So it's so dark. Sad. It's so just dark. Sad. So that's why I still believe in radio, man. It's like radio to me was always the great equalizer. So I was always a radio guy because I grew up on radio. I was completely raised on it. And, you know, I still believe like, look, when I have a song that that works at that level, I get obviously I get paid what I feel like I deserve for the work. And, you know, it's just that's the most exciting time for me. So well, look, they I, built their whole business on the back of creative people, too, and kind of got away with it. You know what I mean, too? Yep, um, 100%. What, what they paid based on their advertising revenues. Oh, it's like ridiculous. Yeah, so they 100%. got away with murder um, in a big degree. So not not Nick, not much different than Spotify, you know? Nick, this is why I need to become an artist in my old age. I need to get a great merch deal and, you know, sell my merch to the three people who would care. You're going on the road? Yeah, to, to, to my backyard. All right. The, the, the backyard tour is going to be amazing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So tell me, I, I always love this story. You have a, a story about a relative when you did well and you had a breakthrough hit and did, you did very well with, and you had a certain relative who kind of topped you with what they, what yeah. they managed to pull off who weren't songwriters. Yeah. My, my, my uncle, John, John Hollander was a really, really heavy poet. He's a poet laureate sort of cat. And he, he um, is a professor at Yale for a thousand years and he wrote zillions of volumes of poetry and had like a huge fan base uh in his world and uh the year that i had my first number one hit i produced uh, cupid's chokehold for gym class heroes in my family i felt like you know i had finally you know i made a statement on behalf of our side of the family i was like so excited i was like yes we, we put a big one on the board it was great because my uncle was just in our in the house he's the most revered character you know and uh, and my uncle calls, he leaves a message on my voicemail and I didn't hear from him much. He's much older and, you know, um, he's a man of few words, uh, you know, uh, and he called up, he said, hello, Sam, it's your uncle John. 
Have you heard of the Eagles? Please call me back. Yeah. And I swear he said, what say these Eagles? But maybe I'm making that up at this point. It just sounds right when I say it. But picture, you know, sort of like a John Houseman tone, like deep, like, you know, um, <laughs> I call him back and he's like, you know, Don Henley. I have an email here from a Don Henley. It says, uh, John Hollander, we are a fan of your poetry. We took one of your... Uh, poems no more walks in the woods and we set it to music and we'd like to release it on our first record back in a hundred years called hell freezes over or whatever the hell it is and we'd like to offer you publishing and i just stopped i was like fuck i was like god this guy's gonna have a much bigger year than i have man and he's 80 and he did the record came out um <laughs> He, uh, he got, you know, he got his publishing and the record went like three or four times platinum or whatever. And here I am with like my one little hit and he's there with it. He might have, you know, God, he was a rock star, man. So that, that was very humbling. And, you know, That's it, was incredible. A good lesson. it was a good lesson, man. You know, in your family, you're never, you know, you might think you're top dog. You're not even top dog in your own like family tree. So. <laughs> It was good. He was. Well, hopefully, he was you a, gave him some good advice at least, so that he got I the did. proper. I up, proper. I did. I hooked him up with my lawyer, Lisa Sakransky. I was like, yeah, "This is great, man. You should meet Lisa Sakransky ASAP." So I called up Sakransky. I said, "Lisa, I said I got a new client for you. He's eighty and he's a poet." And she's like, "I'm like, and he has an eagle's cut." She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, just go with this. Just ride it. So, yeah, Lisa Lisa was the lawyer on that deal. That's hilarious. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I just want to see um, what, what you got coming up. Is there anything you can talk about now or not? Wow. Um, I have a couple of things I'm doing right now that I can't actually talk about. Not like an NDA thing, but I'm, I'm a jinx guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I have to tell you, I, I really think I have uh, – a really neat slate of stuff that's coming for the rest of the year. Like I, I sort of like, I have like my little mood board thing I create in my head. And I would say like, I look at it and there's some really badass shit that's coming in the pipeline very quickly, but I think it's, it's going to be more fun with the reveals. Um, and some of it's just like so ludicrous and strange. You're going to be like, this guy's on crack. It's great. So I've been doing that. I've been working on a book a little bit. Um, and, um, I don't know, man. I'm really like, I've been playing a lot of guitar. I'm just trying to get better uh, melodically because, you know, I'm a guy who's taken guitar lessons 25 times in my life. I quit every time I do it, including last fall. But I, I you know, I'm pedestrian enough to do Kumbaya and to sit outside, but it, it really does help me harness my melodic stuff. So I, you know, many days I just sit out back and just sort of try to figure it out and shed ideas and just, you know, little notes here and there, but I do make headway. So it's been a like strangely productive time, but I do have some great stuff coming, but I want to leave it as a cliffhanger if that's cool. Uh, it's fine with me. And so with a daughter kind of heading into high school, right? I mean, do you yeah. get, does she turn you on to stuff that like you aren't aware of ever musically? I'll tell you, man, like the genetic code is so strange, right? Like we're at that age where my kid doesn't even want to be in the same zip code that I'm in, right? They're <laughs> supposed to hate their mom at this age. And I'm always encouraging her. I'm like, dude, you should be hating your mom. Like that's what that's what all the books say. You're supposed to be like idolizing your dad and hating your mom. She hates me, man. So it's hard. We're at a weird age. But the strange thing is musically, 
our tastes are so similar. And it's funny because, you know, my wife is not a, uh, not a yacht rock person, right? By, by, by trade. I'm a big yacht rock guy, right? With no irony, right? Like this is like, <laughs> to me, like McDonald's and Loggins and Christopher Cross and Boz Skaggs are sort of like the holy quartet of joy. And, um, you know, uh, I, it's funny, like my my wife was never a McDonald fan, and I, I I brought her. We met Christopher Cross one night, and then McDonald. Someone hooked up for me and me and McDonald to meet one night at a, backstage at a show. McDonald was like the most gracious, sweet guy, and she came out. My wife was like, "I love him." I'm like, "Be a fan, then. Be a real McDonald fan. Don't be a fake fan." That Embrace voice, everything. McDonald's. Come on, he's the greatest ever. But my kid, she listens to all that stuff. You know, it's not like she's sitting around. Yeah, she does the TikTok videos to like whatever the trap beat of the week is. But like for her, she loved, you know, she loved panic. Like it, my kid who will also very quick, very, is, is, is the first to say to me, yeah, there's a lot of panic songs I really like. I mean, they're less yours, but you know, the, some of the ones they did without your, I just think are a little stronger. I'm like, thanks. Um, but you know, she loves panic. She loves AJR. She's she loves AJR. She loves um, um, you know, my chem. Like she's discovering all that stuff. And then, which was before her time, obviously. And then she loves, you know, she listens to like Steely Dan and the Doobies and you know Chicago and all this other stuff that she's obviously uh, inherited through the bloodline. So wow. I would say it's interesting. She does put me on to stuff, but less than when she was younger because now I think her tastes have sort of matured into a different thing where she actually likes stuff like we're listening to the same stuff a lot of Billy Joel a lot of Springsteen like stuff like that you know so it's neat but she's a great A&R mechanism I will tell you I will play her something I've worked on and she'll just decimate it like <laughs> that doesn't sound like something I would listen to I'm like okay thanks oh, nice no, she's great. She, the industry better watch out. If she ever takes this turn, man, she's going to be a, a formidable force. She's a she's a she's a strong kid. So it's awesome. Fantastic. Well, my friend, thank you for this catch up. It's really Brother, I'm really honored to have you, you on I, here. I give you a big hug. I give you a big hug right now. But obviously, we're on Zoom, so yes. I'm giving you the 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 the, the joy. And I hope uh, I see you, you soon on one of the coasts. One of the absolutely other. and seriously, thank you for having me. And to everybody out there, uh, I would say. Um, Go be creative, go do something great and do it every day of the week, whatever it is, whatever that you love, whatever you're chasing, just do it every day of the week to really keep the muscle going and you will um, you will surpass your greatest uh, expectations. Great advice. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Sam. All right, man. Stay healthy. Later. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpod.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.